Today on Your Money, Your Wealth podcast number 374, Joe and Big Al run a retirement annuity spitball analysis. When exactly is it appropriate to buy an annuity? Why MYW regulars, you get three guesses on Joe's answer and the first two don't count. Plus, when might it make sense to take Social Security early? And what are the rules for collecting survivor Social Security benefits? Finally, how does net investment income tax, aka NIIT, or the Medicare surtax on long-term capital gains impact a house sale? And is it possible to do a 1031 exchange from rental real estate in Utah for investment property in California? I'm producer Andy Last, and here are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Uh, Gene writes in from San Diego. He goes, when is it appropriate to buy an annuity? Never. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Next question, please. Uh, I don't know, Gene. Well, if you were going to buy an annuity. But, I mean, you would want to buy an immediate annuity that you're you're exchanging cash for uh, income that will last the rest of your life. Payment stream. Yep. Right. Most annuities are a little different. Yes. I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Al? I think if you have, if you really can't handle at all the ups and downs of the market and you need a cash flow, it's like, it's like buying a pension plan. But I, but I think you're right. I think you want to buy an annuity that's simple, that you understand, that you get immediate payments. Do it when you're ready to have a payment stream. Yeah. Um, otherwise, if you don't understand it, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Um, so just kind of be careful on that end. But um, annuity is, is, is insurance. So you're buying income is what you're doing. So if you have longevity in your family and you're worried about running out of money and you want some sort of floor, of guaranteed income from that insurer, you know, then that's when it's appropriate. Um, but there's there's trade-offs, right? You're going to receive a guaranteed fixed income stream, but it's going to potentially be a lot lower than what you could generate. Or once you die, it's it's, it's gone. It's gone. I, well, and I think that's the downside. For safety, you you give up a lot of return. And, and, and I would say, I'll, I'll say it this way, Gene, when we have people that come into our office all the time with annuities, and I would say the majority of the time, they're sorry. They yeah, they, well, they don't understand what the hell they bought. Right. And then when they find out, it's like, oh. It's just like, well, do you need the income from this? They're like, no, I, I'm good. I got a pension and I got social security. I think I'm all right. I want it for growth. And I'm like, well, what the, well why'd you buy this? <laughs> right. This is income. All right. We got Joan writes in. She goes, hi, I just watched your Social Security Retirement Strategy show online. Um, I don't think my email was sent through your portal. Um, it probably was, Joan. You just ignored it. <laughs> it happens, Al. It does. I get questions all the time. I was like, I, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> well, so Joan thinks her situation is unique. All right. Let's that, see how unique it is. That they all. I'm currently living separately with my son from my spouse. Okay. Um, friendly separation. Okay. I'll be at, well, that's good. You know, yeah. You, that's better than not. You know, it's like, all right, I'm going to live with little Johnny, you know, see you later. But I don't see any recon um, reconciliation. Um, I'm getting back together. Yeah. Reconciliation. Thank at you, this sir. Time. Thank you, sir. I'm 65. He's 61. Ultimately, I would be collecting Social Security first, regardless. I'm seeking unemployment, was let go due to COVID in June 2020, collected EDD for 18 months, and have a job that I think will pan out. 
after the background check is complete. Oh, okay. She's got a little background yeah, check. Don't you? Really, really go. close. She's so close. See what happens with that background yeah, check, though. Yeah, you never know. Joan. The salary will be approximately $46,000 a year, which will allow me to defer my uh, defer me taking Medicare, even though I will apply now, but currently under hubby's insurance. Wait a minute. So she's still calling him hubby. It's <laughs> a friendly bit, separation. Yeah, it's friendly, but do you think, I mean. Well, they're, they're probably still married. They're separated. Well, yeah, but, you know, it's kind of like a term of endearment, isn't it? Generally, it's a friendly separation. Does your wife call you hubby? No. Oh, hey, hubby. Hey, big owl. <laughs> no, she doesn't call me hubby. Hubby. Okay. All right. Um, I, where, where am I? <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay. She's on um, hubby's I insurance. I, I think Joan still has a lot of feelings, to be honest with you. Oh, you, you were at hubby's insurance. Yes. I, I, I think she, it's going to be hard for her to let go. Uh, Defer taking Social Security early. Uh, she, her aim is to wait until she's age 70 um, while still trying to save into the 401k. After five years employment, I believe I can receive a pension. Uh, don't mind working to 75. I currently have $475,000 in an IRA in an annuity, which I am told to take at 70 or 72 because it also grows 8% per year. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's another topic. <laughs> 150, 150K in stocks, $350,000 in cash uh, from the sale of my home last year. I anticipate earning approximately $2,800 a month at age 70 from Social Security. I also believe that my full Social Security will be higher than half of my husband's. I don't see filing suspending Social Security benefits on my husband who isn't claiming yet as an option. Am I understanding this correctly? Also, I don't see the real estate market changing very much anytime soon. Uh, the $350,000 in cash isn't earning very much, but I am conservative. Um, but I must conserve this for my future home purchase. I'm anxious about placing this in the stock market. Are you in agreement regarding this? Thank you so much for your opinion. Um, okay, Joan. <sighs> getting over her hubby comment. <laughs> So you're thinking they might reconcile. I don't know. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Right. But she says it's not an option. So we'll go with that. Okay. Um, so she's, she's got some assets. Um, so call it five, six, seven, eight. She's got a million bucks. Okay. Yep. Um, and she's going to get $3,000 a month at age 70 from social security. She doesn't mind working till 75. So what is she spending is what we're missing. That, yeah. That'd be a good thing. Well, let's see. She, she's got a salary of $46,000 a year. So let's say she wants just to replace the 50 grand a year. Right. You know, with the million dollars in the social security, you're right in line. You're just going to replace your paycheck. And I wouldn't, I mean, you're sitting in a good spot. Yeah. And, and so without knowing anything more, Joan, I think the the concept of working till age 70, as long as you can do that, it's a great idea, right? Because your social security is higher. You have more years to save, right? More years of compounding growth. 
and less years of pulling out of your portfolio. So if, for people that are willing and able to work to 70 or longer, fantastic. Um, a lot of people in their 60s decide, you know what? I really don't want to do this anymore. Is that you know, your feelings, Alan? Oh, it's like, where's the, can I leave that? Where's the, where's the, where's the door? Where's the exit? <laughs> It's like, how many podcasts have we done? How many more do I have to do? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Joan, I mean, Alan's right on because if you just like delay retirement one or two years, I mean, the money on the back end could last another three to five. Yeah, it's it's a big deal. Um, yeah, keep the money out of the stock market if you want to buy another house. Um, so if you're going to rent a, uh, a little bit, maybe put that money in CDs. Do not buy another annuity. That, that annuity, by the way, is not growing at 8%. That's what it's they not, tell you. That, that was the uh, illustration, right? Well, no, it's not even that. It's it, it's an income benefit rider of 8% on the money. You're not going to receive 8% return, right? So they run this $374,000 and they're going to be like, okay, well, you're going to take this benefit at age 70 or 72 because you're getting an 8% growth rate on it. And then you're going to be able to pull 5% out of the overall contract. And everyone's like, wow, this is so great. But it's going to take Joan to live until like 105 <laughs> to get any return on the money, right? Because it's all principal back to her right. first, right? And if she's going to work until 75 or she turns that thing on at age 72, right? So the just to get a rate of return, she's probably got a... Um, it's going to be over 85 years old, over life expectancy in yeah, most cases. I think when I've seen you do the illustration, it's, it's, it's about 20 years just to get your money back. Right? Correct. Yeah. And then, and if you die at that point, you, you made zero return, right? All the, the insurance company held your money for 20 years and just dribbled it back to you. Right. So it's a longevity play, but the bad thing is, is, and she doesn't understand the product. That's why I hate this crap so much is because she thinks she's getting an 8% rate of return. She is not getting an 8% rate of return. There's interest rates right now are at all time lows. And all of a sudden the insurance company just can appear to pay you at eight. Right. It, right. But Joan doesn't know any better. She's like, all right, well, this nice insurance person talked to me and I'm conservative and I want to retire and I, and I got a divorce, but I really love my husband and I wish you'd take me back. <laughs> And it says Bobby. this is a $475,000 IRA in an annuity. So right. what can she do about that? How does she unwind that? Well, I mean, I'm not giving advice. I don't know. She, it's, I mean, she's got enough cash. And, you know, the, the problem with that is that she um, has done a really good job of saving money. She's conservative and she's listening to financial podcasts and she's trying to get her ducks in a row. And, I think she'll be fine if she wants to turn the income on. By all means, you're conservative. You have a guaranteed income. But the, the, the issue that I have is that she doesn't necessarily understand the product. If she goes, I'm turning income on because I want a guaranteed income stream with my Social Security. So I have a certain income floor that I will never outlive. And I don't ever have to worry about this again. Then I'd be like, okay, she understands the strategy that she's going into. But she she's she states that oh I'm getting an eight percent rate of return. Yeah, that's what it says, which is incorrect. It's eight percent of a factor of an amount that you're going to later get five percent from, or or four or six, who or knows? What, whatever whatever the contract. Yeah, is. yeah. So 
Uh, thank you, John, very much for the email. Uh, best of luck. Great job. Check out the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to learn more about annuities, download free financial resources, read the episode transcript, and to ask Joe and Big Al on air any money questions that you've got brewing. If you're wondering how much money you need in retirement, how your retirement account balances stack up now, or whether your invested assets are properly allocated, just download our portfolio tracker guide from the podcast show notes. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your favorite podcast app to get there. Don't forget to click share and spread the word about YMYW. Answering uh, your money questions, go to yourmoneywealth.com. Click on Ask Joe Now. Type in your question and we'll answer it. No matter how great or bad they are. That's our, that's we, our motto. Yeah, we try to do them all, don't we? No, we'll do them all. No matter if you proofread them or not. <laughs> They're more fun when you life. don't, because then Joe has to try and figure out his way through it. And by the way, we don't rehearse this. This is <laughs> No. <laughs> there, is no, there is no preparation for the show. I think our uh, listeners know that. Well, I think it adds value of knowing that we know this stuff off the cuff. Right. It just shows how smart you are, Al and how great of a reader I am <laughs> on the third grade level. It does. Okay, let's go to John. He goes, hello, YMYW team. I recently came across your podcast and been listening to some back episodes. I have some questions. Good boy. <laughs> Doing some investigation on this. Um, I hope you can answer this on the podcast, on a podcast episode. You mentioned it may be better to claim Social Security early instead of waiting to age 70 if you save the Social Security benefits. Every financial advisor, I've heard shouts from the rooftop. Unless you, unless the Grim Reaper is pounding on the front door, delay Social Security to 70 in a discussion. Can you explain the math behind your assessment? Yes, we can. Does it apply to claiming at 67 only, or does it extend all the way down to 62? It applies to 62. What if you have another lost decade in stocks, which seems more likely than not? Does your assessment take into account that the earnings on the Social Security payments you have saved will be taxed as capital gains instead of being taxed at regular income, as most Social Security payments are? Or is that even more icing on the cake to take Social Security early? Okay. I drive a 2009 Honda CRV with 48,000 miles on it. This guy does not drive. <laughs> next sentence. He lives, he lives right next to his work, maybe. 2009. That's, a, that's many years. Yes. He's got 48,000 miles on it? Yeah. I got a 2013 that's about to hit 100. How many miles is that a year? It's like 400 miles a year. When I take it in for service, I usually get, you only got that many miles on it? I give them that old shady used car salesman line. It belonged to a little old lady who only drove it to the grocery store. But it's true. It belonged to my mom who drove so little. I had to take the car out for exercise every week to keep the battery charged up and to get engine fluids warmed up and flowing. All right. Okay, there we go. My favorite beverage is Sam Adams Boston Lager, but I seldom drink it anymore since I am carb challenged. I've recently settled on Michelob Ultra. This oh, is the second Mick Ultra guy. Right. To paraphrase a famous line from a BP political debate dating back a couple of decades. I know Sam Adams and Mick Ultra. You're no Sam Adams. Mick Ultra is 2.6 grams of carbs. I think Sam Adams is 11-ish, maybe more. Consider that constraint and that Mick Ultra is more beer-like than water-like. 
I guess it really is quite an achievement. So hats off to McUltra Brewmaster. Okay. I think that email was more about beer than it was about social security. I think so too. <laughs> okay. Do you want to do the math there? Bissell? Yeah, I've, I've done it before. So I, I would say it this way. When, when I've run analysis to look at, at 70 versus 62, the break-even turns out to be somewhere around 79 or 80. And that, that's just in real dollars. No taxation, no increase for social security for cost of living. That's just straight dollars. Right. So if you have a $2,000 a month benefit or $24,000 a year, you add $24,000 from age 67 to 79, or you take your lower benefit from 62, you add up all of those benefits, basically the break even is roughly around 79 years of age or 80. Exactly. And, and, and as you said, that's because if you take it at 62, you've got eight more years of collecting payments. But if you wait till 70, you start later, but you have a much higher payment. So that's the break even if you want to think about break even. Then when I kind of overlay that with that 6% rate of return, again, no taxes, no cost of living, we're just trying to keep this simple. It adds about 10 years in the break-even. It comes out to about 89 or 90, the break-even, which tells me that if, you're, if you take it at 62, you're disciplined, you believe the market over a long period of time is going to earn 6%, and you, you have a much later break-even. So that's, that's more like 89 or 90. I would say most people spend what they get. So it doesn't really work for most people, but if you're disciplined that that can be a decent strategy, but if we do have another last decade, then it didn't work very well. Right. I mean, it's all about the assumptions that you're making. Yeah. The market assumptions, which nobody knows. It could be negative. You would be far less better off by investing. So it's a hundred percent of the assumptions that you're making. So if you assume that you, so, so John, while you're drinking your Mick ultra, right? Get a spreadsheet and then figure out, right, what your benefit is at 62, what your benefit is at full retirement age, and what your benefit is at age 70. Add up that annually, and then you'll find out what the, the real number is, and you'll find your break even. And then you run assumptions and say, okay, well, how about if I get 3% or how about if I get 4%, how about I get 8%? And then you can even get more complex and say, all right, well, let's just say that there's a, a capital gains tax drag on my overall return each and every year. So there's different things that you can do. However, it's, if you don't need the money, right? If you need to spend the money, right? Then it's a total, I mean, we believe that social security is income. It's not an investment. For those of you that think Social Security is an investment, that's why we tell you to take it early and invest it if you think it's an investment. However, we will shout to the rooftops as well that it probably (laughs) makes more sense to delay because it's a guaranteed income stream that you can't outlive that will help you later in life because you're basically taking a fixed income early and investing it. If you need the income, it's that's not the right strategy. Yeah. For what it's worth, I'm waiting to age 70 myself. Well, we're going to be out. Giving out his family <laughs> financial planning family, secrets. Family secrets. Uh, Laura writes in from Arkansas. Um, my husband died two months ago. We were married since 1991. I'm 54. Uh, what is the best benefit for me to sign up for? He had just signed up on his Social Security. He's 60. <laughs> he passed before he received his <laughs> his back pay. I mean, I guess Social Security benefits. Or anything, what should I do? 
Okay. That's a, that's a good question and a very easy answer. There's nothing you can do yet, Laura, because the earliest you could collect survivor benefits is age 60. And if you collect it at age 60, you're not going to receive the full survivor benefits. So I don't know if that's the right answer or not. We'd have to know a lot more about your situation. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry for your loss, um, but. But there's nothing currently you can do. Unless they have a minor child. Well, yeah, that's true. Good point. I mean, so there could be a family benefit. Um, but I'm thinking is that, hey, he was 60. He passed. Is there some back pay or I mean, there, there could be a death benefit of a couple hundred yeah, bucks. It's like 385 or something like that. Yeah, and you have to like, apply for it. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work to get 300 bucks. Um, but yeah, survivor benefits uh, do not um, come into play until age uh, 60 unless um, you have minor children. So, yep. A couple of weeks ago, Big Al offered to run a social security analyzer for YMYW listeners to help you determine the best claiming strategy for your situation. And a lot of you took him up on that. But if you didn't take advantage, I've got a little secret for you. When you schedule a free financial assessment with Pure Financial Advisors, they can run the social security analyzer when they assess your overall financial plan. Click the link in the description of today's episode in your favorite podcast app. Then click the big green get an assessment button there in the show notes. Download the social security handbook from the podcast show notes as well. It's a handy reference when determining your social security claiming strategy. Christopher writes in from Nevada. He goes, hey, Joe, Big Al, love the show. My wife and I live in Nevada. Uh, We make about $150,000 a year and thinking about selling our house and spending the next two years exploring the country via furnished short-term corporate rentals to find where we want to live next. So yeah, try before you buy. I like it. Oh, try before you buy. Is that a little commercial? (laughs) (laughs) We drive a 2018 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Although I'm not a big drinker, when I choose to participate, when I choose to participate. I'm not thirsty very often (laughs) when I am. Uh, he's the most interesting man in the world. That's right. Or maybe not interesting man in the world. Uh, my drink of choice is a little whiskey neat. Mm. Um, I have the best friend in the world who is a Dachshund. Do- Dachshund. Thank you. Thank you. Labrador. Mix. Who loves long walks in the Nevada sun. Okay. Okay. Good. Very cool. Um, we have only lived in our house for about 16 months, so we will owe long-term capital gains tax after the sale of our house. At least that is how I interpret the rule. After depreciation, seller and buyer's commissions, paying off our loan and improvements will net about $264,000. We bought right after the election and got a really good deal. I'm confused about when and how the Medicare surtax on capital gains applies. In our case, does it not apply since we typically have modified adjusted gross income below 250000 I'd appreciate learning a little more about the surtax to try and comprehend how much we owe in taxes for the year 2022. Thanks so much. And second email, because I completely forgot, wanted to say hi to Andy as well, the only person who keeps this show running and on track. Thanks, Christopher. Right, Christopher. Yes, and agreed. We know that. Yes, on track. I, I think the first thing I would say, Christopher, is let me make sure we're clear on how a capital gain is computed because it has very little to do with the cash you receive from escrow. So here's how it's computed. 
is you look at your sales price and you deduct all your closing costs and, and that that's called your net sales price. So that's one figure. And then the second figure is what you bought the home for plus any improvements. And if it was a rental, you got to deduct depreciation. I don't think it was, but so your net sales proceeds minus your, your tax basis, your purchase costs plus improvements. The difference between those two is your gain. It has nothing to do with how much cash you receive. You might like, let's just say an example where you didn't have a loan, right? And so there in there, that case, you got a lot of money back, but it's not all taxable. So look at it that way first to get the right capital gain amount. Right. Because <clears throat> if, if that's his primary residence, is right, well, which I believe it is. It, it, that's what I'm thinking. But they were only there 16 months, so they may not get the exclusion. You're supposed to be there two years. But here's another angle on that one. And that is if you are moving because of unforeseen circumstances, you can get a prorated uh, exclusion. So look into that. I mean, like if your wife is pregnant with twins, that would count. <laughs> So I he's know. asking about Medicare surtax. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just giving an example of an unforeseen circumstance. Got it. Cool. Anyway, so it probably doesn't qualify, but you should look into that. So anyway, that's how you compute the gain. And as far as the Medicare surtax or more appropriately called the net investment income tax, uh, that does kick in when your adjusted gross income is over 250,000. I think he said that your income is normally below that. So Let's just say, well, you say you make 150000 a year. So let's just say then 150, and then the first $100,000 of gain gets you to the 250. So there's no net investment income tax on that part. But everything above that, the capital gain would be have that 3.8% that, that, um, surtax, if you will. And so you're going to have to pay it. So probably not on the entire game, but on some of the game. So I think maybe Christopher, you know, received $264,000 from the sale of the house, right? Or he's doing the math and he's kind of figuring out, sure. all right, well, this, that, and, may, and let's just assume $264,000 is the game, which I don't think it is in Nevada, but maybe it's a, a, maybe. a million dollar house, right? Yeah, so maybe. if he bought a million dollar house and kept it for 16 months, it probably could appreciate by yeah. $300,000. Yeah. Housing has done, it's been incredible as you know, almost everywhere in the last year and a half. So if that is truly his gain and he makes $150,000, right? And then so the 250 per se, he saw that was like, oh, well, now I'm going to owe all this surtax on top of that. Well, if you make 150, the first $100,000, as Al just said, you, you don't pay the surtax. And then anything above, once you hit that 250 mark, is when the surtax yeah. comes in. Yeah. So in this example, if that really is your gain, so 164,000, you've got to pay that extra 3.8% uh, tax. But I think um, we, we Christopher has some good news. I, I'm I'm guessing that that's not as all gain. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to know, Christopher. You know, when you have a little whiskey, neat, <laughs> take a little sipper of that, and um, you know, shoot us another email. David from Carlsbad. He writes in. He goes, "We have a vacation property in Utah." circumstances are forcing us to sell the property. Can the property be converted to qualify for a 1031 exchange into a California investment property? Uh, that's, that's a great question. So 1031 exchange, by the way, so this is when you have a rental property or income producing property, you can sell it and you have to follow the timelines, but then you could buy another replacement property that's at least as expensive as the one you sold. And you can defer that gain into the next property 
And you'll still pay that tax when you sell that next property, plus whatever additional gain you have from that property. But that's what a 1031 exchange is. It's a great tool. But it's a, it's a good question because a vacation rental is a, is a mixed use uh, rental. In other words, you're getting uh, personal use generally as well as, a, as the vacation rental. And so interestingly enough, in 2008, the IRS uh, did a revenue procedure, 2008-16, that actually came up with a safe harbor on when you could do this. And uh, here's, here's the test you have to satisfy to be able to do a vacation rental on a 1031 exchange. Number one is you must have owned the property for at least 24 months immediately before the exchange. That's a little bit different than the normal rules. And number two, within each 12 month period, within that 24 months immediately preceding, in other words, the two years before you sell it, you have to, you must have rented out the property at market rates for at least 14 days. That's number one. And number two is your personal use of the property cannot have exceeded the greater 14 days or 10% of the days the property was actually rented. So you got to, you got to satisfy those two things. And if you buy another vacation rental, you have to satisfy that again for the next two years. So you can do it. You just have to make sure you follow the rules. What is the likelihood of that? Anyone passes that test? Uh, well, it's possible if you don't really use it much. You never, you never go to Utah. So David never had to visit <laughs> the state of Utah. Basically, is what you're saying. You you go there for two weeks out of the well. The so year. so if you rent it for like 250 days, right? You can spend 25 days in it. Is I mean, you could. It's possible. Okay, it's possible. It's it's not necessarily easy. So it doesn't really work if you use the property a lot yourself for personal use, but it can work. I thought you were going to ask, what's the likelihood the IRS would ever challenge this? And they, they would challenge it all the time. <laughs> we are strictly by the book here, Al. <laughs> and that's how I answered it. They, they, the answer to that question is they don't really look at that very carefully. So, but what I told you is the law. It's the honor system. Yep. Whiskey, tequila, beer, Celsius, and PT Cruisers in the derails at the end of the episode, so stick around. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors. Click the Get an Assessment button in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or call 888-994-6257 and schedule a free financial assessment at a date and time convenient for you, no matter where you are in the country. Chances are one of the experienced financial professionals at Pure will be able to identify strategies to help you create a more successful retirement. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. You like whiskey? I do. Yeah? Yes. I used to when I was in college. I can't stand it now. Really? Yep. <laughs> Bad experience? Uh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, Actually, that was my experience my, with tequila. My worst experiences have definitely been with tequila. Some of my better experiences in life with tequila. Yeah, well, I've had some of those too, but the other ones sort of drowned out the good ones. Like a little old-fashioned, big gal? <laughs> I don't like bourbon either. <laughs> I usually stick with beer. I don't get into trouble that way. <laughs> Nettie Flanders. Uh, it's like my mom. Doesn't, doesn't drive very much. No. She got a PT Cruiser? Yep. Remember those? I do. Oh, those were awful. <laughs>
but you know i when i first saw them i thought they were ugly and then i went through this weird period of time where i thought oh those are cool and then i came back to my senses oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, but mick ultra we got a couple mick ultra fans we do just don't like the can of a mick ultra Oh, that it's skinny. It's tall and skinny. Yeah, right. I'm just not a it, you know tall and skinny. I can see. Yeah, it's yeah. I can see that not working for you. Right. You, you want a big fat can? You, you got to have a normal can. <laughs> you know, unless you're drinking like a Celsius here, or you know maybe yeah. A, as you hold up your tall skinny can. <laughs> but this is not beer. <laughs> this is called Celsius. <laughs> but if you got a beer, I don't want a tall and skinny beer. Got it. You got to have a normal 12 ounce can. Right. Right. And if I guess if you use a straw, then you really. <laughs> straw in your beer? Yeah, right. <laughs>